Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever or whenever you are, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sports Crutch with D. Crom. I'm your host, David Cromwell. And although it is great to have the NFL back, something far, far more important has just begun in our country, the 2020 election. While November 3rd may be less than seven weeks away, people are already voting. Just a few weeks ago, North Carolina, one of the six key battleground states, sent out its first wave of absentee ballots, and as of this moment, 81,000 people in the state have already voted. Yesterday, the pivotal swing state of Wisconsin mailed out absentee ballots, and in-person early voting begins today in Minnesota, another battleground state. And in that spirit, we continue our special Election 2020 series here on Sports Crunch. Two weeks ago, we had Matt McCoviak join us to give us a Republican perspective on the race. And tonight, our good old friend Jake Marsing is here to give us a Democratic perspective on the race. Y'all might remember Jake from previous episodes as a member of the Broncos beat in Denver, which he was. But he has since returned to the world of Democratic Party politics. He recently worked as an aide to Colorado State Senator Mike Foote and has served as consultant, field organizer, and campaign manager to countless candidates for state, local, and federal office. And he also just won the 2020 Boulder County Young Democrat of the Year Award. Jake, it's a pleasure to have you back on. How are you feeling? Decrom, I'm happy to be back with you. Happy to be talking about an issue that's as critical as this election. I, you know, I, I miss our days talking about football. I miss my time on the Broncos beat. But I feel like the, the work that I'm doing now, the work that... Uh, is at stake in this election is so important, and I'm happy to be with you. Oh, absolutely, and I'm sure many of those Broncos players uh, who led that Black Lives Matter protest at Denver earlier summer would agree with you that that was the most important thing they'll do all year, even more important than what they do on the football field and what is obviously another transitional year for the team. I agree completely, yeah. I think you know players have an understanding now more than ever of the role that they play and the platform that they have. And that's why they choose to do things like kneel on the field, because they know that's what's going to generate attention to the causes that they care about. So I fully support them in doing so. Indeed. And uh, four years ago around this time, many, if not most, in the news media were touting Hillary Clinton as a solid favorite to win. And we obviously know how that ended. And today, several are describing Joe Biden in nearly the same light. And as I mentioned in the intro, we had Austin, Texas-based Republican strategist Matt McCoviak on the program recently, and he said he expects this to be a very, very, very close election, is convinced that whoever wins the presidency is going to win it by a narrower electoral college margin than Trump's electoral college margin in 2016. Do you share that view, and do you think the media is making the same mistake they did four years ago by grossly underestimating President Trump's chances of winning? I, I do. I think that either candidate could win this election. When you look at the map and you look in, at, at where things stand in the battleground states, there's certainly an argument that can be made, and I know Trump supporters make it regularly, that the president has a real opportunity to win in a lot of these battleground states and a lot of the places that he did win. You know, you talk about the Trafalgar model of polling, where there's you know a, a suppressed Trump vote that exists in these states. You know, I try to not be in the prediction business about who's going to win elections and who's going to lose elections, but I agree completely. This is going to be a close race, and turnout's going to be extraordinarily high. I think you're going to see turnout get close to 70 percent in this election, which is something we've not seen uh, in a federal election, uh, really, in our history. I think you're going to have a great deal of interest in the debates. I think you're going to have an enormous amount of interest in every piece of this cycle for these last 45 days or so. Because every single American understands the stakes here. They understand what is in front of us. They understand the challenges the country is facing. They understand how important it is that we, that we get back on track. We understand 
Uh, they understand what a disaster Donald Trump has been for this country. And they understand that Joe Biden is a man of great moral decency, a man with a plan to, to stand up to China, a man with a plan to improve health care access in this country, a man with a plan to protect Social Security and Medicare, and do the things that a president ought to do in terms of moral leadership. So that's, I think, what's at stake in this election. Voters understand it. I expect really high turnout, and I expect a close race, especially in those battleground states that we talk about. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, many people believe that north of 150 million people are going to vote this year, which will, will likely be uh, an all-time record. Uh, and uh, as uh, one pollster, uh, notable pollster, Patrick Murray of uh, Monmouth University himself said, uh, if you ask me uh, who I thought was going to win this election, by crystal ball, is it just cloudy? It, it is even dark. It's broken in the shop. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a fair point because it's it, it's impossible for us you can look at every polling model. And look, if you look at the polling, I think even Republicans would acknowledge that the polling right now tells a story of a race that is, if I were Joe Biden, I'd be pleased about where I'm at right now. But you have to also understand that debates haven't happened. We're 45 days out. There's so much that can happen between now and then. And I think the Biden campaign understands that. I think the Trump campaign certainly understands that. And what uh, each campaign is going to try and do is reach people in their particular ways, and, and we'll, we'll see where things wind up. Oh, absolutely. And uh, given the fact that a lot of those these new voters coming into the process this year, there's a lot to be found on both sides. And that's why I personally do not pay attention to any polls right now, because uh, because there could be an undercount of the votes on both sides, especially when you go to certain battleground states. Like there might be a certain undercount of votes for Biden in a state um, uh, like Arizona, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and for Trump, an undercount in the Midwestern states. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's a possibility. I think you saw, I, did, I went over the map from 2016, as well as the RCP polling averages. I don't know, just kind of I had some downtime this week, and I'm a bit of a nerd. So I engaged with uh, some of those numbers. And on average, Clinton polling in the 2016 battlegrounds was about three and a half points off in most of those battleground states. And I looked at the map, and I said, okay, let's assume the polls are off by about the same amount that they were in 2016 in the battleground states. And if that's the case, you have an election where Donald Trump or Joe Biden very easily could win on a couple of pivot states, namely the three we talk about most often, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and then Arizona as well as also a pivot. Uh, if if Biden can re can restore that quote unquote blue wall, uh, blue wall in the upper Midwest and win in Arizona, um, you're gonna have a map that is very favorable to him. If he struggles in those places, if he struggles with the white working class voters uh, that Donald Trump had so much success with in 2016, if he continues to lag uh, a little bit, I think it's been overblown by the media, the issues he's having with Hispanic voters. But if he, he lags in that area, especially in places like Florida and places like Arizona, you're going to see some challenges there uh, in Texas as well. I, I, I look out for Texas. I don't think he's going to win in Texas, but I think He's going to definitely improve uh, from Hillary Clinton's standing. I think that will be a state that is, is a tough call. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities for Joe Biden to expand this map, a lot of places for him to succeed, um, and a lot of places for, uh, for the Trump campaign to be nervous about. Uh, you could say the same thing in reverse. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Arizona because that's what I want to talk about right now. Uh, you obviously live out west of Colorado near that state. And Arizona, in my opinion, it needs just as much attention as 
the four major Midwestern states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Florida. And for well over a year, Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report, who is one of the lone um, voices of punditry, well, he's not really put it, he's an acclaimed data scientist that I trust, uh, he has been one of the lone voices I'm still listening to uh, in this election. And for well over a year, he has remained unwavering in his belief that Arizona is more likely to flip from Trump to Biden than Wisconsin is and then Florida is. And there are more than enough reasons to take his thoughts seriously. When you look at Arizona, it's an increasingly diverse and metropolitan state with the kinds of voters moving toward the Democrats, whereas Wisconsin, on the other hand, is the whitest and it's the most rural of the four Midwest battlegrounds, and it has the kinds of voters that are moving away from the Democrats. Would you be surprised if yeah. a Biden victory consisted of, say, all the Clinton states plus Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona, as opposed to all the Clinton states plus Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin? I would be surprised only from the respect of, I, if, if Pennsylvania and Michigan are moving enough, I would expect Wisconsin to move in a similar fashion. But it wouldn't stun me. I hear your point, absolutely. And I, I agree. I think Arizona is a uh, is, is the, if not a top target, uh, a top target, if not the top target for the Biden campaign. I, I think, you know, obviously, if you do the math, he can uh, lose in Florida, he can lose in Wisconsin. But if he picks up Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and Arizona, plus the Clinton states, then Joe Biden's president, uh, president of the United States on January 20th. Uh, I think absolutely that, that that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, the polling tells us that the Senate race in Arizona is not that close. Polling tells us that Mark Kelly is very likely uh, to beat Martha McSally in that state. Uh, and I, I think that race and the organization that's happening there will likely benefit the Biden campaign. I think it'll be mutually beneficial. I really do think there's a world where, where Joe Biden wins in Arizona, wins the Clinton states, and is able to uh, is able to to, to flip Pennsylvania and uh, and Michigan. That's certainly a possibility. It's certainly a possible map for him. Uh, yes, and uh, a lot of people say uh, North Carolina and Florida are the two states to watch on election night. I would put Arizona right in there with them because it's going to take time to count the votes of the Midwestern states given the laws. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was looking over a map of how states are responding to COVID, right? And that's the big unknown in this election is how long are we actually going to be counting vote? Uh, you know, in Colorado, we have all mail, uh, all mail ballot voting. We've had it since 2013. It is the best voting system in the country. We consistently are near the top in the nation in voter participation and in voter safety. Uh, vote, there is no voter fraud in the state of Colorado. It does not exist. Uh, it's a fallacy made up by the GOP to scare people from voting. Uh, but with that said, we also in Colorado do a very good job in terms of counting vote that is turned in. Ballots are due 7 p.m. on election night to your county clerk. If it's not turned in by then, your vote's not counted. So we turn around vote counts pretty quickly here. You will know who wins Colorado by election night. That's not necessarily the case in states who are building up all this mail ballot infrastructure or this absentee voting infrastructure uh, in the last several months due to COVID-19. So that is a scary thought as well. And I know it's something that the Trump campaign is trying to do, is so discord and disinformation about mail ballots, about mail voting, so that in the event that he loses this election, he can blame, uh, he can blame, you know, voter fraud, essentially, which I know is a, is a tool he's going to try and use to continue to, to cause doubt about the outcome of the election. So that's a concern that I have. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think, I think mail voting, I think Arizona, I think different laws around the country are going to have a major impact uh, once we get to November 3rd. 
Yes, and I'm glad you talked about voting by mail because let's do some organizing right now. You were a field organizer, and right now with voting underway, the biggest priority for the Democratic Party must be get out the vote efforts. Can't pay attention to any polls or pundits, as you as you alluded to early. You have to assume that this is a 50-50 race and act like it until the very, very end. And uh, given the pandemic, as you alluded to, most Democrats plan on doing the right thing by casting their ballots before November 3rd. And according to a recent NBC News survey monkey poll, 71% of Democrats intend to vote absentee, whether by mail or using in-person early voting. And as I've been saying on this program for weeks, even at the end of my show's previewing NFL games, everybody must make a plan to vote. Yet given a weakened and hobbled postal service, many voters, especially those living in states without a universal vote-by-mail system like the one you have in Colorado, like you talked about, they may have to adjust their plans. If you're an organizer on the ground and you had to make this recommendation, that if somebody wants to receive a ballot in the mail, what is the latest possible date for them to submit a request? So that's going to vary state by state. So what I would encourage to do, thanks to our friends, uh, when I say our friends, I mean Democrats, Democratic Party friends over at Crooked Media, although this is a non-biased source, so I encourage you to go no matter what your party. If you want to cast a ballot in this election, you can go to votesaveamerica.com. Go to votesaveamerica.com. You can look up your state, look what your deadlines are to vote, to request an absentee ballot, or write up on most of those deadlines in a lot of states, if not already passed. Call your county clerk's office. Get information about how to turn in a ballot, what your rules are for absentee voting. They're super friendly. It's literally their job. Call them up and they'll help you if you want to vote absentee. But you're absolutely right, Deepron. It is so important that every single person who cares about this country, cares about democracy, cares about health care and education and our future as a nation, make a plan to vote. Don't just say, I'm going to figure it out. Make a plan. Are you going to go in the morning or the evening? Are you going to go on election day or are you going to vote absentee? And if so, are you doing everything you need to do so? Voting is a very precious right, and we have every obligation to do it. Plus, it's super easy. It's not a hard thing to go do. So make a plan to vote. That's what I would encourage you to do. Call your county clerk. Go to votesaveamerica.com. Find opportunities uh, to get that information that you need and get out there and vote. Uh, Yes, and uh, that in-person early voting option uh, should be uh, considered by a lot, a, a lot more Democrats, uh, especially if the problems with the uh, Postal Service uh, persist uh, well into October. Don't you think so? Well, you know, in Colorado, we have mail and uh, we have mail ballot drop boxes. So every county clerk, uh, for example, in my county of Boulder County here in, in uh, kind of northern-ish Colorado, our county clerk has drop boxes all around the county. There's one just down the street from my apartment. So what will happen is I will get my ballot probably the second week of October. I will fill it out at my kitchen table cast my vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and John Hickenlooper to, to replace Cory Gardner in the Colorado Senate, excuse me, the United States Senate representing Colorado, and then walk it down the street, drop it in a drop box without ever having to worry about whether or not my ballot's going to make it uh, thanks to the Postal Service. Uh, that is a luxury that we have in this state that not every other state has. So again, I would encourage folks, as soon as you get your ballot, if you are voting by absentee, you're voting by mail, As soon as you get your ballot, fill it out, put a stamp on it or two stamps and put it in your mailbox as soon as you possibly can, because you're right. The work that uh, Postmaster General DeJoy has done to try and uh, delegitimize the Postal Service, trying to fund the Postal Service, which, by the way, is not the smartest move politically. The Postal Service has a 91 percent approval rating in this country, uh, but the Trump administration continues to try 
and hinder its operation because of this exact concern. They do not want people to vote. Democrats want people to vote. We want people to get involved. Republicans don't because they Republicans know that when people vote, they lose. So we have to take that power away from them and encourage folks to get out and vote. And, uh, uh, and uh, it's been uh, said, and there is uh, a lot of uh, reasonable arguments to be made, that that DeJoy is trying to kill two birds with one stone here, not obviously trying to help uh, the, the, Trump uh, uh, the Trump campaign hobble mail-in voting, but also to privatize the entire Postal Service altogether. So he and his uh, buddies at FedEx and other USPS rivals uh, will benefit. I think that's, you know, I, I can't speak to whether that is... Um... I can't, I can't, you know, necessarily uh, say that that's, you know, the goal. I don't, I don't know whether or not that's the case. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me because that's how this administration has operated throughout the last four years. The Trump administration and Donald Trump have consistently put his friends in the private sector, his business buddies, over the good of the American people. He's not a populist. He's a plutocrat. And that's something that I think people need to understand as well, that, that this election is about who's going to stand up for working class families and the, what he has done to the postal service to try and benefit himself is exhibit a of why, uh, not well, maybe not exhibit a, but maybe one of the top 26 alphabetic exhibits of why Donald Trump should not be rehired for this job. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned drop boxes. Uh, like uh, in my home state of Illinois, we don't have uh, the universal vote by mail system you have in Colorado at the moment. But absentee ballots are going out next Thursday. I should get my ballot the same time around you. And like you, I'm going to fill it out immediately and take it to the drop box uh, nearest to my house at the beginning of October, which is just a short drive away. So uh, if there's a drop box, use the use those drop boxes and and. Uh, if you have to go to your county clerk's office, hand deliver it to your county clerk. And uh, several are recommending that those who receive their ballots on or after October 14th return them in person to their county election office or a ballot drop box if available. Would you recommend that timetable as well? I, I think absolutely. Uh, I think that that is an absolutely good timeline. I, my, my policy, if you promise, as soon as you get your ballot, fill it out, turn it in. Uh, and turn it in as quickly as you possibly can. That's my recommendation. Get your vote in, get it done, don't worry about it, and make sure your voice is heard in this election. Uh, yes, but not just only get it done, understand that you have alternatives outside the Postal Service to return it, and if you get your ballot on or after October 14th, and uh, that probably takes the mail option off the table because you don't want to risk it being uh, massively delayed. You know, potentially what, what we will tell people here in Colorado is that October, probably October 25th or so is probably the deadline we're going to give folks uh, here in the state of Colorado to get their ballots turned in. We haven't gotten official guidance from either the Secretary of State's office or either the campaigns on that uh, yet, so I couldn't tell you what, what the best timeline is. I think there are certainly alternatives to, to the Postal Service, though, and I would recommend I would recommend those. And, and in Colorado, and at least in my county, we do something pretty great, which is once your ballot's been received by the county clerk, the system will send you a text message. So we get a text message every time our ballot's been processed and received. So uh, I, I think the earlier you can get your ballot in, the better you are. There are alternatives to postal service. And if you feel like, and if you want to use those, I think that's certainly reasonable. Yes. And, uh, and also, uh, at a certain date, if people who um, have requested their ballot but a ballot hasn't come, by what date would you say, all right, uh, don't expect your ballot to come. you got to go uh, to in-person early voting or vote on Election Day? 
I would say probably, depending on your state, again, I would go to votesaveamerica.com and verify a lot of this information, but I would say, uh, depending on your state, most likely by Halloween is typically what I tell people. If you do not have a ballot by Halloween, you're not going to get one in the mail, and you need to contact the clerk's office. In Colorado, for example, we typically get ballots right around October 15th. I think this year ballots are going to be sent out. Uh, so I look at my calendar. Ballots are probably going to be sent out October 12th is my guess, so that most folks will get them that second week of October. If I hadn't gotten my ballot uh, by, oh, I would say the 21st, so if I hadn't gotten my ballot by about uh, 10 days after that, I would go ahead and reach out. Thank you very much for and, that. And when I, say reach out, when I say reach out, I mean reach out to my county clerk's office, make sure that it was sent. If it was sent, go ahead and plan on voting in person. Uh, yes, and in several states, they will allow you to track your ballot. They will alert you um, when it's in the mail, and uh, they'll alert you um, when it has arrived back at them and approved. So uh, keep uh, so use that tool at your own discretion, folks. It's very, very helpful. And uh, thank you very much for that uh, voting advice, Jake. And uh, let's move on to the news of recent days. Uh, several top-tier Biden supporters have voiced concern in recent days, and most notably his chief rival for the uh, 2020 Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders. He suggested that Biden would almost certainly lose unless he stopped his centrist approach and catered more to progressive voters on economic issues. And also some more establishment Democrats, no fan of Bernie, Bernie Sanders, by the way, in swing states, believe that Biden needs to do a lot more in-person campaigning to energize voters, as the New York Times reported today. Do you think there is such an enthusiasm gap? And if so, should Biden pivot and endorse progressive policies like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All? Well, I think if you look at the work that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders did, and Bernie has said this, that the work that those two teams did after the primary was over to come together and, and really look at the issues facing the country and decide on approaches that worked for both progressive, uh, progressive folks in the party like myself and and more moderate folks in the party to address some of the great challenges. I think I, I would say that Joe Biden has done that work. He has laid the foundations of a platform and of a policy approach that will make him the most progressive president since Franklin Roosevelt. And Bernie has said that himself. You know, I, I think all of us as Democrats are very, have a little bit of shelf shock uh, still from four years ago. There's a lot of fear among Democrats that we're doing things the wrong way, that we're going to I think there's a lot of uh, tightness generally uh, about the outcome of this election because we understand what the stakes are. So I think there's going to naturally be a lot of criticism. There's going to naturally be folks who would do things differently. But ultimately, I, I think Joe Biden is running an effective campaign. I think the messaging that they're putting out is strong. He's currently, right now as we record this, he's on TV in a CNN town hall, from what I can see, doing exceptionally well. And I think that's what the voters are going to see in the debates as well. They're going to see a very clear contrast in this race between uh, a dedicated, compassionate, empathetic leader who has a plan to make the country better, to, do, to finally uh, protect the country from COVID-19, to improve health care in this country, to stand up for education, Medicare, Social Security, and the middle class, while Donald Trump continues to care too much about himself to be able to be a competent president, to be able to do the things that he promised working class families he was going to do. You know, four years ago, Donald Trump said that he was going to build a wall, that he was going to make Mexico pay for it, that he was going to bring back the middle class, that he was going to stand up for the forgotten men and women of this country. It simply hasn't happened. It hasn't happened because he just isn't good at the job. He's just in it over his head. It doesn't mean that he's, you know, you know I, I, I can say all day about what I think about Donald Trump, but the fundamentals of it are he hasn't done a good job, and this pandemic is point A. 
this administration failed to do the job that they told the American people they would do, and that's why he shouldn't be rehired in four years. I think the Biden campaign is getting that message out. I think you're going to see them continue to talk about Joe Biden as well. If there is a criticism that I have of the campaign, it's that we haven't seen enough, or at least that it hasn't broken through, the positive messaging about who Joe Biden is as a person and why he needs to become the president of the United States. He has a policy plan that's going to work for middle-class families and a career of public service that is second to none. I believe the voters of this country are going to see that. I think they're going to, they're going to understand it uh, come November the 3rd, and I think they're going to make Joe Biden the president of the United States. Uh, yeah, and that kind of goes along with what Bernie's general point was. Uh, Bernie, um, I, I, he, I might have been putting words in his mouth by, by like he wasn't necessarily saying endorse the Green New Deal or Medicare for All. Just uh, stress the uh, policy objectives that my team and your team agreed to, and emphasize that every day on the campaign trail. Yeah, I think I think what Bernie's argument has been is that, and this is what Bernie's great at is is talk about the real pocketbook economic issues that impact people's lives. Uh, and I think Joe is going to continue to do that. The one place that Donald Trump still leads in almost every poll that you see on issues is on the economy. He has among low information, new uh, or, uh, or infrequent voters, he has about a 12-point lead on average on who will handle the post-COVID economy better. Uh, that number is the only number, by the way, where Donald Trump consistently leads among any, uh, any issue or any voting demographic. So if I were to buy, I understand Bernie's criticism, and I think it's 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 not an unreasonable one to continue to talk about the ways that Joe Biden and his economic plan is going to make uh, folks' lives better, is going to make middle class families' lives better, and he's really started to hammer in on a couple of points, including you know today making sure that uh, you know he there was a tweet today, middle class families are not going to pay a penny more in taxes under his plan, but the wealthiest one percent of Americans are so that we can fund infrastructure, so that we can fund uh, the things that this country needs, so that we can create 5 million new green jobs. That's what he sees. I love the line that he's using consistently about how green energy, you know, Republicans see the end of oil and gas. Joe Biden sees jobs in green energy. I agree. I think that's going to be a winning issue for him. So in terms of Bernie's criticism, the more that Joe is talking about the issues that matter and his plan to address those issues, the better off we are. I think he's doing that. Yes, and I think that he took a step in that direction tonight from what I heard as well by addressing like the minimum wage and things like that. So uh, so, he, so, it's something for him to build on these final seven weeks of the campaign. And another thing Matt Mikowiak and I discussed a few weeks ago that I want to discuss with you are the two biggest national security threats America faces, not named COVID-19, Russia and China. Right now, the world finds itself in another consequential battle between democracy and despotism, and Russia and China are leading the effort for the latter. Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are arguably, in my opinion, the two main architects of 21st century totalitarianism. And as we've seen in recent weeks and months, Putin continues to indefinitely tighten his grip on power. He seems more determined than ever to bring states of the former Soviet Union back under Russian control. He poisoned his chief rival unsuccessfully, thank goodness. And he obviously continues to run a multi-pronged campaign to influence and manipulate voters in the United States and other democratic countries. And on the other hand, Xi has made himself ruler for life. He has cracked down on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. He lied to the world about the dangers of COVID-19 right from the beginning. And he's currently in the process of running one of the worst genocide efforts since the Holocaust, his campaign against the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Should a President Biden bring down the hammer on both of these countries in his first week in office? 
I think what President Biden will have to do is address the fundamental realities of a changing foreign policy landscape and restore American leadership in the world, which is something that Donald Trump has unilaterally failed to do. We need a president that will support our allies in NATO and across Western Europe and around the world to continue to put pressure on China and Russia, continue to fight to enhance democracy around the world, and return America to its rightful position of moral leadership that Donald Trump has abandoned. He has abandoned our allies in favor of the despots that you talk about. His relationship with Russia continues to be one of the most uh, befuddling things in American history. His fondness for Vladimir Putin is endless, and I do not understand it. Uh, and I don't think most Americans understand why he chooses to cozy up to despots like Putin and Erdogan and Duarte in the Philippines and push his back on democratic leaders like Angela Merkel, uh, Macron, uh, all of the folks who historically have been allies of ours. We need a president who understands the role that America needs to play in the world, return America to moral leadership, and hold Russia accountable, especially when they threaten the lives of Americans like we know Vladimir Putin did with American troops in Afghanistan. He put bounties on the heads of our men and women in uniform, and Donald Trump did nothing. Nothing. I know for a fact that President Joe Biden will do something. He will hold Vladimir Putin accountable. He will hold Russia and China and Xi Jinping accountable for the atrocities that they're committing. He will restore American leadership in the world, and I fully believe. In fact, it's one of the things I'm most passionate about uh, with this Biden campaign, that a Biden presidency means a return to American leadership around the world, a return to, make, to, to making America the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan wanted it to be, George H.W. Bush wanted it to be. He will make America the place that it should be in the world once again, uh, protect our allies, push back against our adversaries, unlike Donald Trump. And also, uh, has Trump's silence pretty much been deafening in the face of Xi's uh, genocidal campaign against the Uyghurs as well? That... Absolutely. He said nothing. In fact, I would almost guarantee that if you asked him about it, he, didn't, he doesn't know. Um, and one of the things that I would like to see Joe Biden do in these upcoming debates is when he's challenged on a policy question, for example, the best example of what I'd like to see him do, and I'll get back to the foreign policy piece in a second, but when Donald Trump inevitably says in that first debate that he wants to protect existing, uh, pre-existing conditions in healthcare, he wants to stand up for, for pre-existing conditions and protect that aspect of Obamacare, Joe Biden needs to just look at him and say, are you even aware that your administration is in court trying to destroy Obamacare, trying to destroy, destroy pre-existing conditions and kick millions of people off of their health insurance when they because uh, they have chronic medical conditions? Are you even aware that you're doing that? And I would ask the same thing for these foreign policy issues like the genocide in China. Are you even aware that this is happening? Because the answer unquestionably is going to be no, because this is a president who is too engaged and involved with himself and his own issues and his own twisted thinking to care about things that impact the American people or America's standing in the world. And that's why he needs to be fired on November the 3rd. Uh, yes, and John Bolton, um, uh, I don't mean to lend credence to him. I am no fan of him whatsoever. Uh, but he said in his book that it, it, when they were in a meeting with Chi, she uh, uh, told him about the plans to build the um, uh, concentration camps for the Muslims in China, and Trump uh, like uh, gave him a pat on the back for it. And uh, th and uh, and this is not about politics to me. 
This should be a, beyond two-party politics. I'm an independent. I, I, I invited a Republican on the show to give his perspective on the election and you to balance it out, but I just can't stay silent about this. The fact that Trump, and for the record, as much as I despise John Bolton, I believe him because I have a funny feeling that Donald Trump wants to do to Muslims in this country what Xi Jinping is doing to that in this country, given all he said about Muslims in the past. You know, I, I, I can't necessarily speak to those, to that concern, right? I think, well, what I will say is that Donald Trump has consistently shown time and time again that when it comes to the Muslim American community, when it comes to communities of color, even in this country, he is, um, to put it mildly, he is not, uh, not the strongest or most understanding person for those communities. Uh, one of the first things he did in office, of course, was to enact a racist, xenophobic travel ban uh, from uh, majority Muslim countries around the world. I certainly think that he does not understand Islam. He does not understand uh, Muslim Americans. He does not care to understand things outside his own perspective. So it does, you know, nothing would surprise me at this point uh, from this president. I do not trust Donald Trump on these issues or quite frankly, any issue. Uh, and, and that's, that's what I'll leave it at. I, I'm not going to say that, you know, the president's going to start a mass genocide in this country. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, what I will say is that on November 3rd, voters have an opportunity to make sure that he doesn't get the chance to continue to harm uh, anyone in this country, including working class families who Joe Biden is going to stand up for by protecting Medicare, protecting social security. Yes, and uh, you mentioned Western Europe for good reason. And don't forget our friend Justin Trudeau up in Canada because uh, if Joe Biden wins, he's going to have to get on the phone with Merkel, Macron, and Trudeau, all three of them. All four of them are going to have to talk immediately um, uh, should he be fortunate enough to become president because you mentioned Western Europe, but we're also witnessing a significant chunk of Eastern Europe descend further and further into authoritarianism, if not worse, most notably Hungary and Poland. Hungary is essentially a dictatorship right now where Viktor Orban in the wake of COVID-19 dissolved parliament and he now can rule with the stroke of a pen. And Poland, uh, the uh, far-right president got elected and that country is essentially a one-party uh, theocratic authoritarian regime right now uh, based on a perverted uh, view of, uh, of Catholicism, so, so to speak. And if Biden gets elected, should he um, force NATO and the EU to highly consider kicking Hungary and Poland out of those coalitions? You know, I think Duda and Poland is a good example of what can happen uh, when American leadership fails, right? When America does not hold true to its democratic principles and its values. Uh, and, and that is, you know, it's a good question. I think what, what I would want to see uh, Joe Biden do as president of the United States is continue to stand up for democratic uh, leadership in the world, uh, democratic principles in, in the world, including uh, in the countries you mentioned. I, I, you know, I'm not going to say what Joe Biden should or shouldn't do regarding NATO and regarding our relationship uh, to, to that organization. But I, I do feel confident, and I think most voters would feel confident, that through his foreign policy experience, through the relationships that he's built around the world, he would do exactly what you said. He would call Merkel, he would call Macron, he would call Trudeau, and we begin rebuilding the relationships that have been so badly damaged 
in the Trump presidency and develop plans to stand up to autocracy, stand up to authoritarianism around the world, including in Poland, including in Russia, including in China, including in Hungary, including in Turkey, all over the place where Donald Trump seems to want to embrace this model of governance. I think if it weren't for our Constitution, and we're you know, recording this on Constitution Day, so happy Constitution Day to everyone, if it weren't for our Constitution hanging on by a thread, uh, I think he would want to embrace the authoritarian tendencies that we've seen in places like Hungary and places uh, like Turkey. We see it now with the social and cultural wars he's waging regarding education policy. We see it in the ways that he talks about his political opponents. And frankly, we see it in the ways that he talks about voters who didn't vote for him or states who didn't vote for him. He is not a president of all the people. You know, one of the first things I remember getting involved with many years ago was watching uh, not even getting involved, but just watching George W. Bush doing a, a video tour of the Oval Office. And one of the things he said was, when you become president of the United States, you become president of all the people in the country, not just the people who vote for you. Donald Trump doesn't embrace that position. He embraces the position that he's president of the folks who supported him and the 43, 44% of the country that consistently uh, continues to rely on, uh, to back him or to consider, or will consider backing him. Uh, that's who Donald Trump stands for, not for uh, liberal democracy, not for traditional American values, not for the things that really matter to working class families, not for economic opportunity, uh, not for justice in any of its forms. That That's the fundamental challenge in this election. Yes, and uh, we have seen um, uh, similar problems with democracy uh, um, persist in another country that has traditionally been an ally of ours, and I'm talking about Israel. And uh, and if Biden is fortunate to become president, and should the Netanyahu government or whoever succeeds him, should he uh, get convicted as expected, continues to um, continues the backsliding of democracy in that country, should we be willing to withhold funds to Israel until they uh, get their act together? You know, I, I think what we need to have happen in Israel is a genuine conversation between uh, Israelis and Palestinians regarding, you know, the poten a potential two-state solution. Uh, you know, one of the first things that, that Donald Trump did in this country is make a move that almost every foreign policy person in the world advised against, and that would be moving our, our embassy to tel uh, to, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, that was a move that was short-sighted. It was a move that damaged relationships on both sides in that conflict. I think it's time for the United States to have a very real conversation about, you know, about the role that we play uh, in Israel. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and claim to be an expert on Israeli-American you know, relations, but I know that the way that the Trump administration has uh, has cozied up to Bibi Netanyahu and how Bibi Netanyahu has uh, reciprocated in that relationship hasn't been beneficial for long-term peace in the Middle East. hasn't been uh, hasn't been exactly uh, the kind of outcome that I think will benefit folks uh, in the long run. I think there's an opportunity for Joe Biden to really make some some good, um, you know, some some good inroads in this area. So what I will say is is you know Joe Biden's record on Israel is is clear. Uh, he he wants to support Israel. He wants to ensure that Israel remains a strong democratic uh, democratic country in a region. It is not particularly friendly to democracy traditionally. 
And he said consistently that, you know, Israel should stop, expand. But he, uh, on that point, he said consistently that Israel needs to be respectful of its Palestinian neighbors. You know, stop, exp he's, uh, I'm pulling up a quote now, quote, Israel should stop expanding West Bank settlements, stop talk of annexation, annexation's off the table, which is a good thing. He said that uh, consistently that he's been concerned about the role, the, the way in which Bibi Netanyahu has been yielding to the far right of his party to maintain support. I think Joe Biden's understanding of the region, understanding of the foreign policy challenges that we have in the region, make him a much better option if you care about Israel and the United States, if you care about the issues that matter to, to, to give us Middle East peace. Joe Biden is the person you want at the table and not Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner is not the person who's going to bring about peace in the Middle East. And plus, Jared's family has close ties to Netanyahu for decades. Uh, don't you think that is a potential conflict of interest as far as Jared that, is concerned? I think Jared Kushner and Donald Trump are walking conflicts of interest, Steve Crom. I think there is not a thing that they do in their lives that does not present a potential conflict of interest. But you're right. The relationship that the Kushner family has had to Netanyahu, to Netanyahu's government con concerns me a, a great deal. Uh, yes, especially with the erosion of democracy in that country that Netanyahu continues to oversee that we should, shouldn't should ignore either. And uh, Jake, uh, what are the main reasons uh, why I'm voting a certain way in this country? Because the biggest consequence of this 2020 election is a continuation of our democratic republic itself. And given uh, what Trump has done this summer, in whether it be in Portland or Lafayette Square or any other major city where these, there's these mass protests that the National Guard has had to come in to quell him, and what other experts have said he will certainly do should he lose, should Joe Biden be willing to call him the F-word to his face at the debates? And by the F-word, I don't mean the word that rhymes with duck. <laughs> mm -hmm. You mean, I, I, you know, I think Joe Biden is going to have to speak um, speak plainly and honestly about the stakes in this election and speak clearly about what Donald Trump is, has failed to do, what he promised to do, what he failed to do. But most importantly, Joe Biden's got to get out and talk about the plan that he has to rebuild America, to build back better, uh, to, to, to support middle class families in this country, to ensure that we as a, as a you know, Decom, I think as much as you and I care about the issue of liberal democracy, I think the, the voters that are and really, you know, I view Donald Trump as a threat to liberal democracy. I think he doesn't particularly care about the Constitution. I don't think he's read it. I don't think he particularly knows much about government or history or civics or cares to. Uh, I don't think he cares to know much of anything outside of himself. But what I, I do believe is that most voters in this election, and this is the, the Politico, political staffer, in me, uh, they don't view Donald Trump that way. They view Donald Trump as a, most persuadable voters anyway. Most undecided persuadable voters view Donald Trump as a businessman who speaks kind of plainly and off the cuff sometimes, who isn't very tactful, but who ultimately uh, ultimately does the you know does a job. What we have to convince as Democrats, what, what I and, and my fellow Democrats have to convince those voters of is that he's failed to do the things he promised, and he's just not particularly good at the job, which is what I think is true. So, you know, I agree with you that, that Donald Trump represents a threat to liberal democracy, but in terms of what Joe Biden should say on that debate stage, I don't think that's the issue that's going to win the hearts and minds of people in this country. I think it's about protecting Social Security, protecting Medicare, which Donald Trump has already threatened to destroy, uh, protecting pre-existing conditions, which he's in court to destroy right now, and making sure that we can recover from this pandemic uh, and build our economy back in a way 
that every single person has an opportunity to thrive and succeed. That's what Joe Biden's going to bring to the debate stage on, uh, at the end of this month and in October. And that's what he should bring. That's exactly what should happen. Yes. And, uh, 10 out of the 10 other strategists I've heard speak on this matter agree. They think that calling him a fascist will not get you the voters you need to get you over the top. And so you're definitely in line with the mainstream thought there, Jake. And he is Jake Marsing once again, Democratic strategist based in Colorado and a former member of the Denver area sports speed. You can follow him on Twitter at Jake D. Marcy for his sports and political thoughts. And before we let you go, Jake, thank you so much for coming yet again. Um, this is a sports show, so we have to talk about sports. Of and course. there's a, a team in your hometown, the yeah. Denver Nuggets, yeah. who have become the who just became the first team in NBA history to come back from two three-one deficits in two playoff series in the same year to win, and they now face LeBron and the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, and uh, I don't mean to jinx it, I'm not jinxing it, uh, let the word go forth, I don't mean to jinx it, but I just strongly, strongly believe that the Nuggets are a team of destiny, I just strongly believe that, and you've been co- you you covered them a while ago, and you, you saw kids of greatness early on, um, just when did you think they could be this special, and why? So I covered them, Jamal, I was almost full-time on the Nuggets beat and the Broncos beat, during Jamal Murray's rookie season, which was 2016-2017. And, and in that season, what I saw was a team full of so much potential. They would have nights where they looked like the team that we've seen uh, in those playoff wins. And then they have nights where they looked just like a lost, young, uh, inexperienced basketball team that didn't have, uh, that just didn't have it together. But you knew that they would get there eventually. And it's been so gratifying over the last couple of years to really see them put it together. This Nuggets team is tested, man. This Nuggets team has responded to adversity, is bonded together in a way that I've never really seen a basketball team bond together. And it's a credit to Tim Connolly and the Nuggets front office who did not, mind you, with the exception of Paul Millsap, there is not a, you know, is not the top contributor on this team. There has not been a major uh, massive free agent signing. The Nuggets have drafted and developed this talent, which is a, and made it to the, so now we're the top four teams in the NBA through drafted and developed talent, which is something that uh, is so rare in that league. So I give Tim Connolly, I give uh, former uh, GM Arturis Karnasovas a great deal of credit. He's now in Chicago, but, but he helped build that team. And, and Michael Malone as well. The work that they've done has just been awesome to see. And when I was in the locker room, you could see it too. You saw these little sparks of, of you know chemistry and opportunity. I always believe in Jamal Murray. Nikola Jokic is one of I think when his career is over, he'll go down as one of the four or five best big men that's ever played in the league. I really believe that because his, his skill is so unique. He's such a skilled player. He's certainly not an athlete, but he's such a skilled basketball player. Uh, he's so much fun to watch. I'm so excited for this team. I'm so happy for the players on that team that I got to know and cover and, and uh, the coaches and, and everybody involved in that organization who've just done an exceptional job. As a Nuggets fan now, as somebody who's not a part of Nuggets media anymore, you can just readily acknowledge that I'm a fan. It's all gravy from here, man. It's all just, hey, let's let's hang out and see how far they can go. I, I don't really, I don't think they're going to beat LeBron uh, and and the Lakers, but I'd beg I to differ. Be to, I would not be surprised to see them take it to six. I wouldn't be surprised to see them take it to six. Oh, very interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned our. Arturis uh, 
Casanovas. Arturis Casanovas, I'm glad because I actually live in Chicago and the Bulls, after um, the long overdue move of Fiery Gower Foreman, they brought him in to run things. What are the Bulls getting in him? And uh, do you think uh, he has the potential to do for the Bulls what he did for Denver? Absolutely. I think they're getting an exceptional basketball mind. I think they're getting somebody who uh, worked to, you know, who understands the league at a, at a very deep level, who understands how to build a team from all different perspectives. I think if you take the Nuggets approach to drafting and you apply it in Chicago, a market that's going to be much more likely to attract high priced free agents than the Denver market is, you have the potential to, to really do an outstanding job. I think Arturis is exceptional. I think Bulls fans should be really excited that they've got him. I got to know him a little bit when I covered the team. Uh, brilliant guy, super, super nice guy, um, you know, just a really gifted front office mind. And I think Bulls fans should be really proud to, to have him on board. You know, it's going to take time. That's the thing that I think Nuggets fans recognized is that, you know, Woody Page had a good tweet the other day about the Nuggets. He said, uh, you know, the Blazers are the, 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 the Sixers. The Sixers said, trust the process. The Nuggets uh, made progress. That's the, the, the process versus progress is different. So while teams in big markets like Philly just you know, got all the press, the Nuggets were the ones who were actually doing it the right way and landing on draft picks and really succeeding. So I'm excited as a Nuggets fan. It's a great time to be out here in Denver. I wish, you know, I wish that there were games at Pepsi Center and I wish that you know, Donald Trump had handled this pandemic more effectively so that we wouldn't be leading the world in, in single day deaths every single day by 20 or 30 times over. But um, that's the situation we're in, and we have a chance to change that on November the 3rd. Jake Marcy, thank you so much for joining us once again. And that concludes this special episode of Sports Crunch. We'll be back tomorrow to preview the rest of week two of the 2020 NFL season. But in the meantime, stay awesome by wearing a mask washing your hands, social distancing, and above all, as Jake, Jake said, making a plan for how and when you're going to vote right now. Take care, everybody. Bye.